Hello, my name is Dotun Holo Poroku, and this is Building the Future Podcast. I believe the African story will be written by Africans, and there are people crafting the narrative now. This podcast is a series of conversations with people whose ideas and work is shaping the African future. My guest today is Sangul Del. Sangul is an entrepreneur, an investor, author, and someone who is deeply rooted in Pan-African ideology. His latest book, Making the Futures, Young Entrepreneurs in a Dynamic Africa, explored similar themes and topics that I've often explored on this podcast. So it's not surprising that we started the conversation in this episode talking about the book. We discussed the challenges and opportunities of building a business in Africa. We also deep-dived into the competitive advantage of raising capital and having longer runway as a startup, the outsized importance of foreign venture capital in African early stage businesses, and the role of government in facilitating successful startup ecosystem. This episode is packed as we moved from one serious topic to another. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So Sango, welcome to Building the Future podcast. Thank you, Dr. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I knew I couldn't say no when you invited me because the title, Building the Future, was very attractive. You know, my book was also called Making Futures. I saw that, so I yes. Said, we're, we're thinking alike. <laughs> yes, we are. And, it, and it's very funny. When I saw your book, actually, I said, wow, Sangul is a little bit stealing a bit of my thunder here because I've been interviewing <laughs> entrepreneurs for some time, for this, for about three years, interviewing people that have been in the future in Africa. And then you came out with a fantastic book, Making the Future, which again, uh, chronicled stories and, and people that are making the future in Africa. I think we should start from there. Let's start from the book. What made you write that book? You know, it was a, a confluence of different factors. My book is dedicated to Komla Dumont, who was the face of BBC Africa. In fact, yesterday would have been his 48th birthday and Komla died way too young. But one thing I'll never forget about Komla when he was alive, he used to tell me all the time, Sangu, anytime we'd express frustration about how Africa is portrayed in the media, Komla will say, then we need to tell our story. And we need to tell our story on our own terms. Otherwise, others will tell it for us in ways that we don't like. And so Komla always made me understand that as a privileged African with a mouthpiece, we have a responsibility to tell our story, right? And so that's why I dedicated the book to Kamala. So part of that was me feeling the, the moral responsibility to make sure that we tell our story. And I've, I've shared in the past when I was about 13 years old and I was driving in traffic with my old man and I saw the cover of The Economist that called us the hopeless continent, right? So I've, I've always been weighed down by how our continent has been portrayed. Um, and I've always felt that call to action from Kamala's words to to do justice, to tell our story. And it doesn't mean we paint a picture that's just all rosy, but we we do justice to the nuance and the reality of the lived African experience in its rich diversity. But but the question then is, what has changed since you, you made mention of that economist headline, The Hopeless Continent? But then there was another economist headline, Africa Rising, many years after. I, I want to pick your brain or, or get your view on what has actually changed since the 
first one that you saw and then later or even when you started writing when you wrote the book that probably changed the narrative in Africa from the business perspective? So I think that, look, to your point, the Africa Rising cover almost seemed like a mere copper, right? But the problem I had with both covers was the lack of nuance. And so, indeed, the continent as a whole is not a hopeless continent. And neither is every African rising. The truth is always somewhere in the middle. So there, there are some areas in which there's a lot of justification for the optimism. There has been some tremendous progress when you look at the data, right? We've, there's been progress on a lot of the development indicators. We've had a growth of a consumer class. We've had a reduction in political turmoil. We've had liberalization of many of our economies. We've had broad growth. We've had changes, structural changes in many of our economies. And for me, what's actually quite exciting is and what's been different, I'll say, in the last 10 years versus 2000, when The Economist first put up that first article, has been you've seen an incredible growth in the tech ecosystem. You've seen entrepreneurs scale businesses in ways that were that truly unprecedented. So if I look at what the likes of your MFAM or your Soko Watch or your Jetstream is able to do today, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, you, you simply did not see that sort of scaling. If you, if you just look at the scale of Flutterwave, for example, in the last three years, it's an opportunity and, and a sort of a rise that simply was not possible before. And of course, a lot of that is on the backbone of we now have over, you know, a billion mobile subscribers, right? So the mobile revolution has created a platform that allows for a certain level of scaling and a cross-border building that simply wasn't possible before. But at the same time, not every African is rising. We, you know, we're home to about, I think we're, we have what's, we're usually seven or eight of the 10 fastest rising economies in the world, okay? But we're also home to seven of the 10 most unequal nations in the world, right? And so there's a sense in which we're having economic growth, but we're not necessarily having the same sort of shared economic prosperity. Even though relative poverty has decreased significantly, we still, the absolute number of people in poverty has still grown. And Nigeria, as you know, has now overtaken India as the nation with the single largest number of people living in extreme poverty. So there's still a lot more work to be done, but directionally, there's some optimism. Uh, and that was the basis of your book, that you wanted to uh, paint the picture of the nuance that exists in Africa and pockets of growth and, and influence that has been developed by key players on the continent rather than this big headline of hopelessness or rising GDP in pockets of countries. Now, I want to dig deep into how you approach that thesis of nuance and a narrative around nuance. What made you choose the kind of people that you selected to interview? And the second question attached to that is, what were the key things that you found out during that research that was shocking for you or different from what you assumed initially? Right. So, so the process itself, right, as you know, I went to about 45 African countries. And a lot of times when I talk to people about the book, they're like 600 entrepreneurs. That is a, a, a crazy number of people to interview. But then I remind them that keep in mind that it's 45 different countries. So on average, that's about 13, 14 people per country, right? So when you think about it from that perspective, and in fact, what I did do was every country that I went to, I would do research to try and understand, look, who are the 
you know, 10 to 20 entrepreneurs I should speak to in this country. And that was how, that was kind of the process. Every country I went to, I wanted to understand who are the, you know, who are the top 10 to 20 promising young entrepreneurs doing extraordinary things. And a part of that is, you know, doing research to just learn about the country and understand who the young movers and shakers are. Part of it is tapping networks and, and so on and so forth and mining um, to try and find some of the hidden stories because you want to uncover not just the people who are known, but the people who are unknown. Um, so it was, I mean, quite the exciting process. Of course, the, the whole thing took seven years, right? <laughs> because it's, it's a massive continent to do justice to, because keep in mind that I wasn't just, if this was just the telling of their stories, it's one thing, but I situate the story of the entrepreneur in the political, social, and economic history and contemporary evolution of the country in which they operate. And so when I talk about Patricia and Zolontima, I'm not just talking about Patricia's becoming an entrepreneur and her entrepreneurial journey, but I'm situating her in Kinshasa. So I'm also letting us understand what context did she grow up in? How is the political, social, and economic evolution of Congo relevant to her entrepreneurial journey? And so the book is at once telling these entrepreneurial stories. And at the same time, it's also given a little glimpse into the political, economic, and social context of the various countries in which these entrepreneurs operate. Looking at the stories of entrepreneurs in the context of where they operate, the constraints, and sometimes maybe the advantage of where they operate is very important, actually, to narrating nuance and context in, in a story. And that's really good. The, the big question for me then is, how are you able to then draw out the big narrative that caught across the continent? And what are the key findings that was different from your initial hypothesis before you went into the book? I think that the, there were a couple of interesting... So, so I, I will tell you that I took a couple of things to say. The first is, obviously, I went in with some ideas of what I expected or what I thought. But I tried very much to not go in with too many preconceived notions. I wanted to go in with a blank slate and to really just learn, right? And to open myself up to learning because I didn't want to go in with lenses that would shape how I'm viewing things. And so I tried as much as possible to open myself up to just to be explored exploratory and to learn. And, but I'll tell you some things that one of the things, for example, you hear this mantra um, emanating a lot from Silicon Valley about, look, the key thing is ideas and it's about ideas more so than capital and all of that. One of the very interesting things I learned, and in fact, I'll say that prior to the book, I was probably the person who would have said the same thing. Look, just focus on the ideas, focus on the execution, the capital will come. But one of the things I learned from the research and from hearing the stories and immersing myself in the entrepreneurial ecosystems was that actually the African market is such that because of how nascent it is and the stage that we are in and the, the mismatch and the supply demand imbalance, it's almost a winner-take-all dynamic. So our market is such that capital in and of itself sets you up with a massive competitive advantage. And so it is not the best ideas that win in our market, but it is the best capitalized ideas, right? Whereas if I'm an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, or I'm an entrepreneur in London, or I'm an entrepreneur in Tel Aviv, there's an oversupply of capital looking for ideas. And so if I have a very strong idea, no problem, I'll be able to raise capital because there's too much capital looking for too few ideas. And so that's why you can have an Uber and a Lyft, right? And you, you go across your categories and you have multiple of you. You can have Skype is there and you still have your Zoom, right? 
Um, you can have multiple winners in these categories who will all scale and will all do extremely well. The ride-sharing space, beyond the cars, when you look at the, the scooters, if you saw the rise of those startups there, all of them raising funding, right? Whereas in our markets, if you if you just compare the trajectory, whether it's in the fintech space, whether it's in the edtech space, or even if you look look at even M Pharma, part of why M Pharma and M Pharma does have some competitors in the space, but the competitors are nowhere close, nowhere close. I mean, it, they're not even within striking distance. And part of that is because M Pharma has raised about over $17 million in venture. That was one of the big things that I learned. The other thing that I think was quite interesting to me also, and that emerged from the research is, you know, there's this rhetoric that we have about, we seem to push this idea of, you know, free market entrepreneurship and government get out of the way and all of that. And one of the big things that emerged from the research for me was the, in some ways, the emptiness of that rhetoric, the limitations of the market. And a nuanced understanding that there is still a very critical role for governments to play in advancing this ecosystem if we want the sort of sustainable growth and transformation and the job creation that we so badly need. There is an important role for governments and we simply cannot avoid it. Asango, I want to actually double click on those two things that you talked about. The first is the idea of fundraising as a competitive advantage and as a form of a moat. And and the second is about the role of government, both as a partner or as a regulatory influence or even as a customer in the case of Enferma and some other businesses and what that present. But let's start with this capital as a competitive advantage. I hear you on that, but I wanted to give more color to that concept. So I hear you that comparison, which is very apt about companies in Europe or America, where the funding landscape is very complex, established and sophisticated, such that you can literally just fund two or three winners in the same game and they will be successful to different degrees. And, and a good example that you brought up was Uber and, and Lyft. But but in Africa, maybe not so because there are few money chasing the right investment. But there's also the question around debt to the market, where even if you have enough capital, is the market big or even deep enough to take the kind of money that one might throw at some businesses. What comes to mind is the case of Jumia and Conga in Nigeria, where both of them were well capitalized. They have good investors who were able to double down, but probably the market couldn't take two players. So what is your view on that and that influence of market in some cases as well execution in affecting the idea of capital as a moat? Those are some very fair and interesting observations. A couple of things that I'll say, Dr. is. So when we look at Jumia and we look at Honga, I think let's double click there. So is the market deep enough? Let's be clear what market we're talking about. All right. So I remember early on, I was very and I've always been very skeptical about the model. Why was I skeptical about the model? Because I always look at things and I say, okay, what problem is being solved? All right. And how is the business model adapted in a way to provide a solution that is cost effective, that makes sense and that scales? So if I take the M Pharma business model, for example, you have a situation where a, a drug manufacturer will make a drug for $100 and the drug will be purchased at $300 when it gets to the retail customer because you have massive fragmentation, 
supply chain, and so many middle players. Okay, Now you have someone taking tech software to aggregate demand across the board, build the supply chain layer and the logistics layer to be able to do the delivery and to be able to manage inventory and to therefore be able to then aggregate all of that demand and get pricing significantly lower. And with scale, it more than offsets that fixed cost to put that infrastructure in place. So at an intuitive level, it makes sense. Okay. Now, let me look at Amazon. Amazon, you e-commerce, you know, and using Amazon as a proxy for that. If I'm in London or I'm in New York, I order online, I go, I order whatever it is, and it gets delivered to me. They are then able to be competitive on price. Thin margins, okay, but massive volume. Now, what does it take for Amazon? Let's unpack that a bit, right, to understand the key drivers there. The first thing over there is we already know that it's thin margins, right? And so volume becomes very key. So there's massive volume, okay? Now, let's dig into that further. You realize that what is Amazon resting on? Amazon is resting on two critical things that already exist. The first is Amazon is already resting on a very high internet penetration rate okay an internet penetration rate and low cost of data so the vast majority of its customers already have access to internet and are already using the internet it's not a situation where they are now coming to build out the internet infrastructure it already exists the second thing that is critical is the delivery infrastructure okay where the roads are already there the the post office is already there the addressing system is like all these things are already there. So the marginal cost is significantly lower versus you have a situation where, and this is thin margins, versus you have the same model, you apply it in our context, where the internet penetration is not there. We have some of the highest cost of data in the world, okay? The delivery infrastructure is also not there. So now you are taking a situation where what has already been paid for by taxpayers and has that infrastructure that's already been built and funded, you are taking a business model resting on that into a region that does not have those things. And so those players are now forced to build that infrastructure. How can you expect the same economy, right? <laughs> on a consumer base, that is even more price sensitive. That's an interesting analysis. I've, I've always viewed those businesses, especially e-commerce, have infrastructural challenges ahead of them to build the market. But one can also argue that that in itself creates a moat, right? If you're able to build that, let's say you have a long-term investor that can build that, then it creates a moat. But I hear your argument here that for that kind of business, capital, and if you have two players, capital is not, it's not the moat here is probably some other things that you're fighting against because both of you are fighting against infrastructure, market education, the open market that, that people buy from. So it might not be the right business to look into. I want to wrap up on this one, but I really want to maybe get your thinking around that capital as a moat. Uh, maybe you can draw another example of fintechs, two different players, for example, Nigeria, Flutterwave and maybe Paystack doing something similar. And and, and you, can, you can draw examples in other places as well. I agree with you, by the way, that there are different kind of competitive advantage. Capital can be one of those. But the idea of people raising money just because they, they want to have that as an edge. And we've seen other people who are able to out-execute the most funded players because they are capital efficient. So I wanted to just give you more color around that and, and explain what you meant. Okay. So what I mean is this. I think that I don't think capital as a moat is one of those pillars of our ecosystem that's going to be there forever. I think at the existing stage that we are at, 
where it's actually very difficult for a lot of businesses to raise capital. Your ability to raise that capital, okay, allows you to fund operations, scale, and it allows you to make mistakes, all right? M Pharma today has been able to evolve to develop a business model that's very good. This was not the business model M Pharma started with, okay? And the only reason they were able to do this is because they were able to have capital that allowed them to make mistakes and pivot. And so when I talk about capital as a moot now, it's, it's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm referencing is that, uh, that cushion it gives you where making a mistake no longer becomes an existential threat because it is through making those mistakes. It is through making those slips. It's through having those pivots that you are finally able to get your eureka moment and figure out, wow, this is the business model that's going to catalyze us through some sort of fantastic transformation, right? True, because capital enables you to have that long runway and enable you to iterate because the startups by default are companies that are trying to prove a business model. And the best startups are the ones that are able to learn and learn faster than their competition and have enough runway or enough allowance to rate and change their model and just go again. I totally agree with you that the ability of a founder or the founding team to raise money is critical for the success of a high growth business. So it's a very good skills that people need to have because not only are you able to raise money to do what you said, but also the ability to raise money will help you to attract talent. Talent is a big, big mode that you can have. If you attract the best talent, faster than your competition, you have a higher chance of succeeding than them because at the end of the day, it's about execution. Now, let me go into that other point that you raised in some of the learnings that you have from your book, which is the role of government, not just as people that regulate or people that you just tolerate, but as enablers and partners. I, I wanted to just dig deeper into that and why that is important or learning that you are able to draw from your book. Yes, look, I'll even tie it to the capital discussion that we are having. Okay, so if we look at the most recent data we have, all right, as of 2019 from ABCA, right, on venture capital in Africa, what you realize is that only 20% of the capital actually comes from Africa, 20%, okay? That means that four out of all five deals funded in Africa are by non-African firms. Europe and North America alone are responsible for 65%. So this already shows the outsized importance of global venture capital to African startups. okay? Now, this is important because it actually impacts the types of ventures that get funded. As one uh, uh, venture capitalist told me bluntly, he said, and I quote, I invest in startups that are likely to attract global follow-on capital. Okay. Now, what has this got to do with government? All right. I will come, I will, I will, I'll draw that bridge in just a second. One other data point I want to point out, all right, is that if you look at actually where these businesses are headquartered, that is the African startups themselves, you see that the single largest, right, at about 20-something percent of all deal volume is outside Africa, right, which is on par with number two, which is just close to number two, which is from South Africa. Why is that the case? And this is where it will connect to government. North American firms, American venture capitalists represent 42% of the African market, 42%. Now, these VC firms often require African companies to incorporate in the U.S. as a condition precedent for investment. Why do they do this? They do this because of a provision in the American tax code called the Qualified Small Business Stock Provision. So under Section 1202 of the Internal Revenue Act of the United States, okay, investment gains from selling qualified small business stock, you will be eligible for up to 100% exclusion from federal income tax of up to $10 million or 10 times your tax basis. So I want you to understand this very well. That means that for US-based investors, 
they can invest $3 million in a startup, okay? And they can sell that stock for $33 million five or more years later. And they will pay zero federal income tax. So they've still saved $6 million. So now suddenly, this policy provision has now led to a situation where you're going to now have a lot of startups who want to attract venture capital. And we know 42% of the African market is, is U.S. venture capitalists. Of course, they'll incorporate. Why wouldn't you? So I'm saying this to say, to show the power of policy in shaping these things. By contrast, and to set up in Delaware, by the way, you can just go online, go to Legal Zoom, and it'll cost you about $300, and you, you set up your Delaware CCO. All right? By contrast, you want to set up a company in Ghana. First of all, if you are not a local entity, right? And so if you're a Nigerian coming in to set up a company in Ghana, for example, you need minimum capital of 500000 No, so how does that make sense? Okay. When already the, the, the tax code, section 1202, has already created 10 times tax basis advantage if I do it in the U.S. And I can set up in the U.S. for $300. And it will take me one. Let's, I'll just go online in a few hours. I'll set up. Right. So there's a way in which we, the policy environment is already scaring uh, startups from incorporating. Then I told you, I promise you, I'll tie government back to capital. Let's dig into it. These U.S. venture capitalists, where are they coming from? Where is their capital coming from? A lot of their capital is coming from pension funds. Pension funds are the are significant LPs in these venture capital firms. Then let's tend to a part of the... Look, we have over... We have a couple trillion of dollars in pension fund assets. Instead of our pension funds, instead of saying that, look, let's take even... Even if it's 5 to 10% of our pension fund money and use that, okay? Imagine if now you have... That will unlock about 100 to 200 billion dollars and you anchor it as LPs. So imagine if you even say out of that, you are going to put $10 million in a fund as an anchor LP. Suddenly, those are just 200 new funds you create. And you start to develop a, lo a proper local VC ecosystem. But instead, what do, what do our pension funds do? Our pension funds rather go and they are buying government debt. So you see what I'm saying? So there is a role for government on the policy side. To, there has to be an intentionality. It is not enough to just say, oh, government, go away. The rest of the world did not develop that way. And that thinking is myopic. We rather need to say, how do we take, look, you cannot do away with government. There is no other governments, no one has greater scale, greater legitimacy and greater reach than government. So we have to say, how can we use the reach and the power of government Layer on an intentionality and how do we use the levers of policy to shape an environment that will allow entrepreneurs to thrive? So, Sango, I totally agree with you on this, to be honest, especially from both input angle where government can catalyze change and, and input into developing a venture ecosystem, but also from the output angle where government can facilitate the right outcomes for entrepreneurs and for investors in the continent. The question that I have for you around this is then, based on your research, where have you seen and maybe something closer to a good example, maybe not the best example, but closer to a good example where venture ecosystem, and I refer to this loosely to include entrepreneurs, VC, private equity, where they've done this well, engage the government or educate the government and throw them into what you just described now. Right. So I'll tell you, look, where I've seen, I've seen some promise, I'll tell you, and, and it's, it's on the smaller countryside. Look, KVED, KVED is very, very serious about making sure that they build a proper ecosystem. I was very impressed when I was in KVED to see how deeply involved the government was with saying that, look, we want to partner and we want to make sure that 
you know, they want to learn and say, what are the right things we should be doing? And they were, they are very committed to putting in the right policies, right? It read, it, to me, was I was very impressed with the government there and what they're doing, not just even, you know, with respect to VC and entrepreneurship, some of the stuff they're even doing with the creative industry. I was deeply encouraged. The other place is Rwanda. I say this story all the time. When, you know, I was one of the earliest investors in Andela. When Andela was looking to put it, you know, to build out power, I selfishly was pushing them to come to camp. And my people disgraced me. No, they disgraced me because there was a lack of foresight, okay? My big dream was I said, look, let's get Andela to put a tech hub. We call, we can have that then co-located. You have a chassis, which is our gem, right? Then you have all these, you know, you have your mess there, you have your empire. So suddenly you start to build a robust ecosystem. You are thinking, fine, the future. My people disgrace me. What happened? Rwanda, they said, come, 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 come. We see the future of what you are doing. Come here, here is land. Build it here. Not just that. How much do you want to invest? We'll match you in the investment. We'll give you a seven-year tax holiday, okay? How else can we? No, they are thinking far because they understood the implication for job creation, for ecosystem development. They understood that the future is digital. And what does it mean to make sure that you bring in a, a key player like Andela to be based there and to work with them? Interesting. And that example that you draw there of Rwanda seems to me like the government, you have key people in the government who are forward-thinking, maybe entrepreneurial mindset, who are able to see potential in something and work with it. Uh, and maybe there are a lot of African countries that don't have that kind of key people. So uh, I wanted to know what can we do as key players here? So you're an investor and you have invested in several businesses in a country like you gave example of Ghana where maybe people disgrace you. What can be done by us? Let's assume the government people don't understand this. But what steps can we make towards creating something similar to Rwanda? And look, this is why, to me, I had an evolution in my thoughts. I'll tell you that I was those people in the beginning that I, I ran away from government. I used to run. If they are left, I hop on a rocket ship and I go right. But, <laughs> right. but I realized that as long as we are operating in countries where they make decisions, if we keep running away, we will face the consequences of those bad decisions. Okay. Yeah. Therefore, it means that we have no choice but to engage, to inform, to educate, to partner. We have to be in the room when the decisions are being made. We need to lobby, all right? I'm not going to sit here and pretend we don't have issues. But at the same time, it's not a situation like all our government people are Darth Vader. No, <laughs> right? You have you have people in government also who actually want to see their country's progress. They also want to say something proud, right? And so I think that it's up to us to not give up, to engage, for us to lobby, to educate, to come together. We really, look, a lot... A lot of the stuff happening in the U.S. and in other parts of the world is it, even in Botswana, which is another place with with that I've been very excited about what's been going on from a policy perspective. It it, it, it didn't just happen in a vacuum. South Africa, there's a lot of of uh, of lobbying, right? There's a lot of engaging. There's a lot of making them understand. Look, this is what's important, right? You, I saw that even happen. Look, in Nigeria, my good friend Samson and his colleagues when they lobbied, engaged, and they were able to get their bill passed. They're not too young to run bill. Who would have, who would have imagined that was possible, 
right? But there was sustained engagement, sustained policy advocacy, and it actually resulted in real change. And, you know, when that bill was passed, it gave me, I was filled with a lot of hope. I said that, wow, I never would have imagined that a bunch of young, idealistic people who say, you know, we're the youngest continent, it should be reflected in our electoral politics, we should let young people be able to run for office. And that advocacy, that lobbying actually resulted in a bill being passed, which made history, global history. So I think that it is incumbent on all of us. We need to come together. We need to lobby. We need to engage. We need to educate. Because at the end of the day, if we don't, we will be stuck with the consequences of decisions. We will pay the price. I, I normally start my podcast with asking people about their journey. And, and it's interesting. I, I didn't start out with you. We, we went deep into your book and we've had a lot of minutes of conversation around that. Uh, this is a good place to segue into that and say Sangul, a lot has been, I can see pocket of things about you on the internet and a lot of people that we have mutual friends and mutual acquaintances that know a lot about you. But it'd be good to just piece together the story, how you got to this place and how that has influenced your thinking and your thesis uh, about Africa. Right. I think a couple of things that have deeply shaped my thesis and my thinking. So the first is, you know, I was raised very in Africa, right? My, my father was a deep adherent to Nkrumahism and and a great um, believer in Nkrumah. And my family itself reflected that diversity that an African mosaic or so. You know, I'm, I'm a mix of Ghana, Burkina Faso, and Egypt. I'm, I'm Pan-African by blood. <laughs> and so it makes sense that I'll be Pan-African in ideology. And so I think that was quite instructive in terms of my philosophy in growing up understanding that a lot of these borders are arbitrary, um, that when these borders were being drawn, no Africans were in the room. Um, and a lot of the states that were created were not created organically. It's not like, you know, the creation of Prussia by Otto von Bismarck, where you actually it was bottoms up, or Garibaldi in 1861 in the unification of Italy. It, it was different. It wasn't as creating a lot of these nation states. A lot of these nation states were imposed. And, and, and so I think that has really shaped a lot of my philosophy. But I think part of it also has been, especially on the impact side, was because of my old man's human rights work. You know, we grew up with refugees from Liberia and Sierra Leone. And, and so as a young boy, it, it was seared in my brain. It, it really, truly had a massive impact on me. And made me understand how my life had to be situated in this bigger picture, this bigger struggle, this bigger vision um, for our continent. I think the other thing also that was quite instructive was growing up, and, and this is advice I give to all my friends with kids. The one thing I'm so grateful my parents did for me was no matter how foolish my dreams were, they never told me. And so because I had no inhibitions on my dreams, it allowed me to dream far and wide and to truly believe that I could accomplish those things. And I remember during when I would when I would learn when I learned about the Rwandan genocide, and I was so angry about it. And I said, you know, I thought the, the UN should do something and I was I want to write a letter to Kofi Annan. Um, and so I said, go ahead, do that. <laughs> right. Or a story that's often known about when I learned about Harvard when I was about five or six, and I wrote a letter to, you know, the, I thought he was headmaster, to the headmaster of Harvard, right? <laughs> Telling him that I want to, you know, my, I hear this is where you go to get really smart. So I'm smart, but I want to get really smart. When can I join? And, you know, it's easy to, to rubbish, but, you know, my, my parents had a chuckle and allowed me to go on. And the funny thing about that story is, of course, I think it was about seven or eight months later that I got a letter back from Neil Rudenstein. And I learned three things. One, I used to think because of the cartoons I watched, I used to watch these cartoons about Plato and stuff in Togas, 
speak. So if you told me to draw Harvard at the time, I would have drawn men in togas and pellets <laughs> in Greece. So I learned three things when I got the letter back. The first was I learned that he's not in Greece, it's in Massachusetts. The, the second thing I learned is he's not headmaster, he's president. And then the third thing I learned was age five is too young to attend the school. <laughs> so you actually sent the letter or your parents sent the letter to him? Yes. Interesting. Yes. And I met him for the first time in February of this year. And I, I took a, I, it was a wonderful, I mean, it was such an emotional meeting. Neil Rudenstein, uh, the former president, he's still alive. Um, I had a very good chat with him and, uh, and I told him how his, his letter back to me uh, changed my life and gave me so much hope. And I was so grateful to him for encouraging the foolish dreams of a, of a young boy writing him from Ghana. So you, you ended up going to, to Harvard. How did that happen? Where did you do your initial education and how did you get into Harvard? So because of that childhood dream I had, because as I told you, I, I was five or six when I had learned about it and asked my father about it and I was told, oh, this way you go to get really smart. So in my mind, I just, it was the first university I had of. So I thought, oh, I want to go there. Wrote the letter to Nerudenstani, he came back and said, you're too young, but stay in touch. And so I kept writing to the school right through President Larry Summers. And, and so then they had a summer program. At that time, I first got access to the internet in 99. And so I, was, I would go on their website and be learning about it. And I learned about their summer program, wrote a letter to the director of that program, um, told him about my long correspondence with the school. So he waived it because I needed to be a rising senior, which I wasn't. And then I did a fundraiser. Uh, I got into the program. I had a teacher who wrote a letter saying that he thought I could uh, handle the academic work there because it meant taking college level classes when I was four or five years out. Um, so I, I got in, uh, did a fundraiser. Um, and I remember when I was doing the fundraiser, there was a European ambassador who told me that uh, that is 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 young and foolish um, for an African boy to think he'll go to Harvard. Um, and I'll never forget. I mean, and it's it, it, to be fair, he, he wasn't trying to be mean. He was looking at it statistically and he was trying to be like, hey, look, young man, <laughs> The, the, the odds are, uh, are not very good. And he, he, tried, he said he'll be helpful. You know, I can be helpful in Europe and I can connect you to schools there. Um, and he did contribute to my fundraiser. So he wasn't like a bad guy, but he did throw some water on, on, on the flames of the dream. But um, the dream alive, um, I, God being so good, I ended up at the summer school program. Um, I met some kids who were going to these boarding schools telling me that they are taking classes in robotics and all sorts of stuff. And um, ended up being encouraged by them to apply. I applied and, and got scholarships for a number of these schools and, you know, ended up going with the Petty School, um, went there, and then from there applied early to Harvard and, um, and the rest is history, they say. Yes, and, and after Harvard, you decided to be an investor or what did you do and how did you end yeah. up becoming this investor? There. So actually it was when I was at, you know, I'd started a number of entrepreneurial ventures from when I was young. I'd always been entrepreneurial. So I'd been doing a whole bunch of lots of different ventures. Um, and when I was in high school, I did a big research project. I was trying to understand the difference between the evolution of former Francophone colonies versus Anglophone colonies and why, and why democracy was shaping differently. And so my research was looking at the interaction between the colonial government and the indigenous social political institutions in these countries. So I taught all over West Africa doing research for this when I was in 11th grade, so equivalent of lower, lower sixth form, and wrote a big paper on it. 
And as I was doing, you know, as I was traveling around was when a lot of my theories around the opportunities in Africa were being developed because that's when I started to visibly see this growth of a consumer class and I started to observe some of the economic changes that we spoke about earlier. So I went back and I kept talking about this a lot. And it was my freshman year roommate, Jamie Stern, who is now a wonderful fund manager uh, doing extremely well. He's the one who actually encouraged me to, to start Golden Palm Investments. And he was uh, he was my first investor. He taught me how to put together a pitch deck and, and all of that stuff. And so raised some capital, the first capital raise, you know, so put in, started over with, with my, my, my hundred bucks and I was able to raise fifty thousand uh, dollars for 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 our first capital raise, and 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 that's how we started. Oh, and you so started Golden Palm with fifty thousand dollars investment in a fund originally. That's super interesting. The other interesting bit was you were touring West African countries when you were in eleventh grade, secondary school year. How did that happen? How would you? How did your parents allow you to do that? And how did you raise money to do that? You know, I told you I got a scholarship to attend the Teddy School. And the Petty School is such a wonderful school. I had the distinct pleasure of winning the Walter Annenberg Scholarship. So that was a full scholarship that paid for everything. Now, Walter Annenberg is an extraordinary man. You know, in, I think it was something like 1923, he applied to a number of boarding schools and they rejected him because he was Jewish. So they didn't allow him because back then there was a lot of anti-Semitism. And uh, Petty said, we don't care, we'll take him. And he never forgot how they took him in when others wouldn't take him. And he said, I don't want the school to change its character. So over his, you know, Father's Day in 94, he donated $100 million to the school. Over his lifetime, he gave a ton of money to the school, which at the time was the largest single donation to a high school in the world. And he endowed a scholarship because he said, I want us to make sure that we can bring all sorts of people to this school, regardless of their ability to pay. So I was the beneficiary of Walter Annenberg, uh, of his generosity. And the school had a program called the Signature Experience Program, in which any research idea or any passion you had as a student, they will fund it. And so I was curious about trying to understand this interaction between indigenous social political institutions and the colonial experience. And I was talking to my history teacher there, Peter Kraft, about it. And he said, I think this would be great for the signature experience. You should put in an application. So the school funded it for me. And, you know, those experiences, both getting the Walter Annenberg Scholarship and the research funded, that's what also greatly impacted my own philanthropy. So that's why most of the philanthropy I've done have been endowing scholarships so that people can attend uh, schools regardless of their ability to pay. And I've also been investing heavily in endowing research funds to, to really fund the research ideas of, of young scholars. Uh, lastly, let's talk a little bit about Gordon Prime and then let's talk about Africa Health Holding, which is something that you're spending a lot of time doing now. But first, let's talk about the, the kind of businesses, your thesis and golden palms, the learnings and potential or exits that you had as well. So, you know, Golden Palm, when it first started, I always joked that, you know, our first project was um, was the complete opposite of sophisticated. I always laugh when today we are seen as these sophisticated venture capitalists. So when we first started, the first project we did was corn farms and cows. When I did that high school research project, I realized that meat was cheaper in Burkina Faso than in Ghana. And so I've always been intellectually curious. So me, I like asking questions. So I start, I'm like, why is kebab cheaper in Ouagadougou? I don't understand. So I'm asking questions, asking questions. I go to, I, I'm connected to the butcher. Why is your meat cheaper? I ask, eventually, my questions takes me to where they buy the cows from. And I realized that cows in Burkina Faso back then were almost half price the cows in Ghana. 
So a light bulb went up, and I never forgot that. So when we raised capital at Golden Palm, when, 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 when I first started at Harvard, the first thing I did, one of the first projects we did was literally got a truck, went up to the Kina Faso, and bought cows, and then we'll bring it down to Ghana and sell it. <laughs> <laughs> that's super interesting. <laughs> I'll tell you, that's that's how that's how we started, um, and and of course, you know, we evolved from there. We are no longer doing back then. We called it Operation Carbitrage. Yeah, you are cowboys, capital cowboy adventure capitalists. Exactly. You know, we are, we are no longer trading cattle, but we evolved. We then um, built a number of businesses in different sectors. We took we took a broad thesis on what's going to happen as per capita income increases and the economy develops. And we said, well, what's going to happen? Part of the cow thesis was people who eat more meat, urbanization will increase, people who need more homes. So we built a real estate business. Global trade was increasing. So we invested in, in uh, we built a chain of forex businesses. Yeah, consumption of cereals will go up because um, we had done, I had done a, a study, a global economic history study and looked at what happened in other parts of the world as the capital income increased. And so we invested in mechanization of corn farms. Um, and then, of course, as we saw the growth in technology, the other thing we started looking at was then tech. But this evolved, right? We did healthcare, we involved in this evolved. So over time, we looked at all of this and we, we said, all right, hold on. We wanted to focus and hone in. And we wanted to see, okay, where do we see the greatest growth, the greatest risk return, the greatest opportunity, the greatest impact? And it boiled down to two things. Now we saw the greatest opportunities. And the first was on the technology side, and then the second was on healthcare. So on tech and tech-enabled businesses, we saw that there is a huge opportunity uh, for technology to, to just transform and disrupt industries. Because we now have a situation where we have a base of mobile subscribers that creates a platform that is different from back in the day. And you also have plummeting costs, even though I've lamented previously the high cost of data in Africa. It's still much better than before, right? So you're, you're, you have plummeting costs and you have a very different landscape, tech businesses and tech-enabled businesses. So you have an opportunity to solve problems where tech becomes the, the backbone. So we, we saw that, we saw a huge opportunity there, and we basically accidentally became uh, tech venture capitalists. We, so we, you know, we were there, as you know, we were the earliest backers of M Pharma, Flutterwave, uh, Frontier Car Group, um, Andela, you know, Jetstream, Adwa, Sokowatch. So many of the top, what I consider the, I'll say that the, the top uh, tech businesses across Africa were the earliest guys in. And we had a thesis, which is really focusing on the top tier, find the best businesses that we think can scale Pan-African and um, can be leaders in the market categories in which they operate and which are solving a problem where, where the, their tech then becomes a moat. And it's been a, a great success. We have a small team. My uh, partner, AJ, runs that and, uh, and it's been doing very well. Um, we've had some, some very good successes. So it seems to me that you started as a holding company initially where you build your own businesses and then you opportunistically then start investing in other verticals that you don't have expertise to build. So the technology businesses. And can you quickly just talk me through how you develop your pipelines because it seems you have attracted a very good, nice, great businesses across the continent. What are your strategy for attracting and getting into the best deals? Right. I think it's three things. Of course, there are lots of other things, but I think it's three key things. So the first, one of them, not the first in terms of importance, but one of them I think is reputation and specifically reputation with respect to how you know, we really help entrepreneurs, right? It's something that because we are entrepreneurs ourselves 
And because we started as entrepreneurs, we understand the challenges of building a business on the continent. We understand entrepreneurs first and foremost. And we think of ourselves not as investors, but as partners, right? And I think that that reputation has really helped us. People, and look, entrepreneurs, when they're looking for capital, they talk. <laughs> they'll reach out to people. They'll reach out to portfolio companies. And people will tell them that, no, 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 these guys are the real deal. They will get in there. They'll help you. I remember when... When M Pharma started, for example, I used to dress up and travel with Greg on business development trips. I'll go with him to have the meetings to secure this. I would did HR, like roll up our sleeves when they didn't have offices. They they literally lived in my conference room working from there. Right. And so we roll up our sleeves and we really we we put in our all to help entrepreneurs. And I think that that even entrepreneurs we don't invest in, right? If we can be helpful, we'll be helpful. And so I think that there's a dividend that comes from being good people and trying not to screw over people and, and being fair, just have just being good guys and really being helpful to entrepreneurs. And I, I think that's it, it it gives you benefit from that because when people do their diligence, they want to work with you. The second thing I'll say is being intentional about building networks. Right. And and that's where I always joke that even though the book was an extraordinary experience and I loved it and it was a gift, you know, it was a labor of love, but it was also hugely beneficial for, for us as a firm. I mean, think about it. I now have a network of 600 entrepreneurs in 45 African countries. Yes. Right. <laughs> so, yes. So, so, so there's, uh, you know, and, and it took seven years to build that. And don't forget, prior to that, from high school, I was already traveling all over West, all over Africa, right, and doing that research. So I had been building this, I've been, you know, it, it, it's not, I've been building these networks, right? It's now been almost 20 years of intentionally building Pan-African networks, right? And there are very few African countries where I wouldn't have access to a very strong group of uh, entrepreneurs and movers and shakers, right? And that has been intentional. So I say it's, it's important. And, and the thing, it doesn't occur accidentally. You have to put in work and invest time and invest capital. And you may not see the dividends immediately, right? So imagine all those years traveling, meeting people, connecting, just, just building relationships with no clear benefits in sight, right? But having that network, having a Pan-African network, and spending time just trying to be helpful to people, it really helps because now we're able to get a lot of deal flow with our network and we're able to easily diligence also with our network. And then the third part is, to be honest, is luck or as my mother will say is grace. And, and I'll, explain what I, I'll explain what I mean by that. There's, there's a sense in which success begets success. And we were fortunate, we were blessed, we were lucky in the beginning that some of our early bets did so well. And so it was easier because we were the early guys in Andela and in M Pharma. It was easier to get the next stage, right? Then we're in Flutter Wave and it's done well. Then, So by the time we're talking to Soko Watch, of course Soko Watch wants to talk to us because unfairly or not, they think we had something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Even though it was, you know, I, I think most of it was just luck. I think we just, you know, all the pieces fell into place and a lot of our, our bets just ended up doing extremely well. And so there's a it, it creates almost a halo effect where people look at the portfolio and say, wow, these guys have great, fantastic winners in the portfolio. And so potential winners want to work with you. Yeah. And, and I think we've greatly benefited from that because we, we you know, people look at it and say, oh, look, that's the, those are the M Farm and the Flutterwave and the Andela and the Sukowatch guys. So then they, they want to talk to us. And, and we definitely benefit from that. So I think those three um, being super helpful and having a reputation as as investors who help entrepreneurs, being intentional about building networks, and then 
lack of grace. One of the concepts I've been trying a lot to get my head around and, and assimilating is the law of increasing returns. And as you're talking right now, I'm just seeing that working through what, what has worked for you in the sense that you build good reputation, you put in the work in some of your, in a portfolio company, you are able to build good uh, network of uh, high key entrepreneurs across the continent. And that led to that law of increasing return where good entrepreneurs will want to come to you because they know about your reputation, they know about your network, and it just keep on increasing and increasing that way because of what you've done initially, and then it, it, it creates that love increasing it on. And that's something I've tried to also inculcate in many things that I do personally, uh, whether in investing or even personal life, where uh, you want to make that love increasing return work for you every time. So that, that's really good to hear that from you. Lastly, I just want to talk about AHH because I wouldn't forgive myself if you don't talk about that because I know that has been something that you've been working on a lot recently and I'm excited about how you're approaching healthcare, solving healthcare problem in Africa and and your work so far and uh, on it, but more importantly, the potential that I present. So it would be good to just dig deep into this and just, just explain a little bit about what Africa Health Holding is about and the future of uh, and the approach to, to, to solving that problem. Sure. So, you know, I mentioned when I told you that at Golden Palm, we, we dug into it and wanted to see like, where are the two greatest places of opportunity. And it was two things we came up with. Technology was one of it, which my partner AJ runs that. And the second is healthcare, which I run under Africa Health Holdings. And healthcare for me is, is very personal, right? In that not only am I the son of a doctor, but healthcare was one of the biggest. I always knew I was moving back. When I first got the scholarship to attend Pedi, I wrote a letter to myself in which I, I swore an oath to myself that I will go abroad and get all the education I need, but I will make sure I come back to put it to use at home. But the biggest concern I had moving back um, was healthcare because we know the state of our healthcare, all right? We have 14 to 15% of global population, yet we are responsible for 26% of global disease burden. We only have 3% of global healthcare workers. We only represent 1% of global healthcare expenditure. And this is with us at 1.2, 1.3 billion. When we know over the next three decades, we're going to be 2.5 billion. One in four people globally will be African. We cannot continue like this, right? So we, we simply cannot build the future for Africa that we want if we don't solve the healthcare issue. And I think if there's one thing we've learned from COVID is that in a, in a world where the world is shut down, where travel could not happen, where borders were closed, we're forced to stare into the abyss of the dilapidated healthcare infrastructure we've allowed to exist over the last half century, right? And so I saw an opportunity to take technology, to take global best practices, to take a patient-centered approach to transform healthcare and to take a hybrid model where we can build extraordinary quality across the board, but we can we can discriminate in pricing, where we can basically tax the wealthy a bit more to subsidize a bit for the poor. And so we've been going out and we've been doing our, our big vision for us is we're building Africa's healthcare future. We're, we're in Ghana, we're in Nigeria, we're expanding to Kenya this year, and we're literally going out and getting you know from hospitals to clinics, 
to labs, to diagnostics, to telemedicine, where we're trying to solve the healthcare needs of, of the African consumer and to do so in a way that improves healthcare outcomes, in a way that's sustainable and profitable, right? but in a way that's also leveraging technologies that we have today that we didn't have before. And, and our goal is to create a situation where people like me who want to move back, people who are currently on the continent will never have to worry about the, the quality of, of care when they go into facilities. That when they think of healthcare, they, they know that they're going to get an experience where they're, they're going to go in and they're going to get their healthcare needs taken care of and that they're going to receive healthcare with a dignity, with a respect, and with a patient-centered approach that they deserve. There are lots to unpack there, uh, especially around your thesis and of healthcare in Africa, but we don't have the time to do that today. So this is just a note for you that I will have to bring you back to this podcast <laughs> at some point so that we can discuss that in detail, especially because some of the things you said that resonate with me around the challenges of healthcare in Africa, and there are different ways to solve that problem. But it would be good to to dig deeper and unpack your own approach and, and also explore other approaches as well. I, I normally end my podcast with two fire and questions that I ask investors. And, and the first one is, what have you changed your mind on? In, in any way, what views have you held in the past okay. that you just changed your mind on? So one of the things that we changed at, at the Golden Palm side was before there's maybe there's a certain amount of traction okay, that we'd want to see to invest, right? Unless, of course, as I mean, you know, we we're the first check in Empire at that time, it was an idea on a napkin. So unless the idea and the business model is so clear that it's that compelling, generally speaking, if it's unproven, you want to see some traction. But what we realized was there's a gender into the inequality in financing. So there's a lot of the data suggests that there's a gender gap. So that means that at the very earliest stages, if it's mostly male-led startups that are receiving any sort of funding, they will end up having more traction, right? And so a gender-neutral approach that says, hey, I just want to see traction, that has nothing to do with gender, inadvertently actually reproduces gendered inequalities in the outcomes because there is that gender gap in the early stage financing. And so it, it forces us. So one of the changes we've made is to kind of take that gender aware lens and to incorporate that and to understand that traction is not equal because of unequal access to funding. And so now one change we've made is not just what is your traction, but what is your traction vis-a-vis funding you've received or opportunities we've had. We've had to contextualize that. I like what you said there about the inequality of traction is a function of inequality of access to funding. And and one can draw that out, not just for gender, which is very important, but also on places or even a color of the skin of people or background or even education or where they started their business from. And there are some lack of access to capital for maybe someone who started their business in, let's say, Mali compared to someone who started their business in Nigeria. So absolutely. As for that table you are shaking, we have to have another podcast. <laughs> yeah, one. we should. We should have that. We should have that. And uh, yeah, and also we can explore that as well. Somebody who, who grew up in New York and we starting a business in Africa and, and on equal access to network and funding compared to someone who grew up in Lagos. And that is another table to to explore in, a, in another podcast. You're right. My, my last question is, which book are you reading now or read lately? So right now I am reading a fascinating book. Um, 
by Jared Diamond. I highly recommend it to everyone. It's called Guns, Gems, and Steel. Guns, Gems, and Steel. A short history of everybody for the last 13,000 years. And the book won the Pulitzer Prize and the Ron Poulenc Science Book Prize. It is fantastic because what Jared Diamond makes the argument that it is geography and biogeography, not race, that molded the contrasting fates of Europeans, Asians, Native Americans, Sub-Saharan Africans, and Aboriginal Australians. And it's so fantastic because it's a thing that he brings together history, biology, ecology, linguistics, genetics, all of that, and coherently argues how these different outcomes right, is not due to anything innate about the humans, but it's actually an accident of geography and biogeography. It's a fascinating book. I highly recommend it. Yes, I heard about that book as well. And I've been reading the summary, but I think you're challenging me now, not just to read the summary of the book, but to go into the book itself. So that's a good one. Sango, I suspected that this is going to be an interesting conversation with you. But my suspicion, yes, it was proven. But more than that, I think it, it elicits another conversation. And I already know what we'll, what we'll be discussing about next. Thanks for coming to Building the Future podcast. I really enjoyed this episode. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks for Thanks for listening to this episode. Before you go, I'd like you to subscribe for this show wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review if you can. You can also follow me on Twitter at drdotun, that is D-R-D-O-T-U-N, or through the website drdotun.com.